Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Song Chronicles. We conclude our two-part interview with the legendary producer, Bob Ezrin. On today's episode, Bob reminisces about how he loved to listen to records on his uncle's stereo and how you could close your eyes and see a world listening to albums. For him, experimenting in the studio helps to bring a needed sense of fun to the record-making process. On Song Chronicles, you'll hear the -the behind-the-scenes stories told by music makers and music industry insiders themselves. Please enjoy part two of our conversation with producer Bob Ezrin. I just remembered something that was so uh, formative for me because I was trying to think, you know, why was I drawn to all this like theater in audio? You know, I, I used to call them eyelid movies. Why was I drawn to eyelid movies? You know, why did I love that? And now, I just remembered that my uncle Sid, my dad's brother, who was a lawyer and a jazz fanatic, he was the first guy in Canada to have stereo. I know this because we smuggled it in from New York. (laughs) We went on a vacation. We picked it up in Buffalo and smuggled it into the country. Oh, my God. You know, please don't arrest me. I think the uh, statute of limitations applies here. So he's the first guy that had stereo. And I loved going down into my Uncle Sid's basement where he had his whole setup. He had multiple turntables. He had 20,000 albums. He had the largest privately owned jazz collection in Canada and all kinds of recordings and recording equipment. So Uncle Sid has a lot to do with my fascination with recording. I started recording in his basement. But he got a record called Spike Jones and the band that plays for fun in spooktacular stereo. So it was their first foray into stereo. Obviously, you know, they were just having a ball. The Spike Jones band, they, they were so cutting edge and they were so iconoclastic, you know, in every single way. So this album was basically a series of horror songs, songs that were takeoffs on horror movies and horror characters, but that they were using the pan pot like, you know, as though it was the cream in their coffee. They just couldn't stop. So every song had things like bouncing from the left to the right and sound effects in the background. You know, like Spike Jones band, for those who don't know it, they were kind of like the Goon Show or Firesign Theater, as I mentioned earlier, in jazz, in jazz music. And they were off the charts, creative and inventive. They used lots and lots of sound effects. So I listened to that. I loved it. And then he bought an album by Stan Freeberg called The United States of America, which is, it's a Broadway musical that never made it on a stage. That was never done on, because it couldn't be, couldn't be done on a stage. But it was a Broadway musical style revision of American history from the very beginning. And it was all singing, all dancing, you know, sound effects galore. But you close your eyes and you could see everything. You, it was just, it was in Technicolor. It was in Panavision. It was so big and exciting. And I knew every single note and every word. And, and so there was that. And then there was the soundtrack to A Man for All Seasons, the movie, which starred John Gilgood, and which was one of the greatest films ever made. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it because it is about human character and it is about the steadfast commitment to the truth, something that all of us could 
probably benefit from right now. But anyway, so they put out the entire film on LP. It was a double album, the whole film, just in audio. And so I used to listen to it on my headphones. And again, you know, you'd have the sound effects of the oars as he's rowing down the Thames from the court back to his home down in Putney or wherever it was that he was living in. And everything was alive. You could see all the pictures. It was vibrant. So I had a lot of that stuff, actually. When you asked me earlier, you know, what was my sort of marriage to all this theatricality? So, you know, I, I loved the idea that you could close your eyes and hear a world. And so that did inform everything I did in a way. And yes, I kind of imposed it on some of the people I work with where they may not have been thinking in those terms at the time, but it wasn't like they didn't love it. You know, it wasn't like they weren't having fun. I mean, when we were doing, I mean, there is that calliope on Flaming Youth on, on Destroyer, you know, that at the time the band, they were just horrified. Like, what the hell is this doing in the studio? Why do we have, oopa, 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 you know, like on the, on the chorus of Flaming Youth? <laughs> like, what is that doing here? And they ribbed me about it and it was written about and all that stuff. But now when I, you know, every once in a while I do an interview and people go, you know that. Calliope on Flaming Youth. That's like my favorite moment on the record. They loved the experimentation. We did lots of crazy things on the making of those records. And we did lots of crazy things on the making of pretty much everything that I've ever done because it's more fun. Certainly comes across. I have a nerdy question I'm going to ask. So if you started off listening to audio that way, do you mix in drummer's perspective or audience perspective? You never mix a drummer's perspective. Has anybody outside of the studio ever sat on that throne and listened to the band around them? I mean, we're mixing for an audience. We're not mixing for the band. Even if you're mixing for the band, they don't get the drummer's perspective. I simply don't understand it. Aren't most records mixed with drummer's perspective? I don't know that most people are doing it, but lots of people are doing it. And I say to them, like, you may not think about this, but psychoacoustically speaking, the audience, people who go to see music, and have had a live experience ever in their life. It only has to happen once for it to be imprinted, right? They have a picture in their head. There's a guy in the middle that sings. There's a guy behind him that plays drums. There's somebody on one side of the stage that's playing guitar or keyboards. There's somebody on the other side that's doing something similar. Sometimes there's a horn section. They're off to the left or right of the drum and so on and so on. They have a mental image in their head of what a live band sounds like. So if you're making a band style record, so let's just say if you're making, I don't want to use the word conventional, that's not that. But if you're making a record that is informed by the live sound and vibe of the band, then why do you do anything but that picture? Why would you change it? And there's a few other things, like even if you're not mixing from the drummer's perspective, like sometimes engineers just, they're so in love with themselves and their micings that they put like, they have the drums split full left and right. And then, you know, like in a Tom fill, like the guy runs from stage right <laughs> and hits a drum and runs all the way to stage left to hit the next one and then runs all the way back. It's just not, it's not natural. Now, people don't sit there and go, boy, this is an unnatural sounding record, but there is a disconnect between their experience and what they're hearing, and that creates just a little bit of friction between the listener and the, and the record. Why do you want friction? 
Why, why do you want to make people? Now, there are records that are not in any way from the perspective of live. There are records like The Wall where things happen and, you know, all over the place and stuff where it, it sounds like theater. And, and at those moments that are not intended to sound like live, there are moments that are intended to be theatrical and all that. So the rules are off. doesn't matter then. If that's what you're doing, go for it. I put the, I put the drums on one side on elected on the song elected on Alice Cooper because I wanted to shake it up and I wanted it to feel different and look different. And I wanted people to be going, whoa, whoa, what's this? But if you want people to settle in and rock along on a regular rock or country rock or whatever record, why change the picture that they have in their head except for effect, except for a specific effect? But know that when you change the picture, suddenly, even though people are not conscious of it, their brains are now working to put things into a perspective that they understand. And, and one of the primary rules for me of, of art, um, and particularly music, is don't force your audience to work. Allow them to, if they wish, but never force an audience to work. So um and that's just me like i you know i'm sure i'm wrong i'm sure i'm wrong about a whole bunch of things and there's other people that do this and you know sell billions of records and all that sort of stuff in the old days but i just couldn't get my head around it yeah so it sounds like your early experiences listening to music in the basement and your theatrical experiences growing up when you're mixing and making when you're sitting at the console and music's coming out of the monitors, for you, that's a, a stage. It's a yes. stage. Yes. Well, listen, in, in a way, for me, the whole world's a stage. <laughs> you know, as, as somebody once said very famously, all the world's a stage. But, yeah, I see everything theatrically. Um, yeah. Because because what we are doing is we're we're capturing performance and then we're giving it to people to listen to watch you know in in to enjoy in some way to experience but it's a performance mm -hmm. so i go to where performances normally live or where i first got to see them and it's either on a screen or it's on a stage yeah yeah that makes sense so you once told me a story about peter gabriel when you were doing the record Salisbury Hill, which was such a huge song for me as a teenager, <laughs> but how you said, Peter, stay in this room with this piano and, and just contained his creativity so that it would be focused so he could come up with songs for that record. Okay, well, okay, you're mixing up a few okay. things that, that we had talked okay. about. But on that first album, he had just broken away from Genesis he, he was in scary territory. He was like out in the wilderness and, and didn't really have a guiding light as to, you know, where to get to. He'd never really done this all by himself before. Mm -hmm. And his management and label asked me to come in and produce. And so uh, he played me a bunch of snippets of things that he was thinking of working on. And were, they were uniformly brilliant, but uh, unformed, not quite songs yet there were a lot of really cool parts and things but not quite songs yet and i was worried that i just wasn't hearing i wasn't really hearing a signature yet um so i suggested getting him out of his milieu getting him out of his comfort zone he was living in bath in england um 
just outside of which is the studio real world that he built and all that stuff. That's where he comes from. That's a very spiritual, very mystical place, Bath. And, uh, and it has a, you know, a great history where the Romans were there and they built the baths at Bath. That's why it's called Bath. But anyway, so, um, so I suggested that he and his first wife, Jill, and their little daughter, Anna, who was only like two, I think at the time, two and a half, that they come to New York where I lived and that he come to my apartment and work there every day. And so I gave him the living room, which was big. I was really lucky. I found this like, I found this like rent controlled building with an apartment where the people have been there for 25 years. So they could only raise the rent by like a certain amount. So I got it for a steal and it was enormous, enormous and beautiful. And you walk down into the living room where you had uh, 11 foot high ceilings, 12 foot high ceilings. I had my grand piano there on a platform filled with sand. So I didn't disturb anybody around me. You could play as loud as you wanted. You could do anything. That's, that's actually where we wrote a lot of the stuff for Destroyer. But um, so I had him go down there every day and I was upstairs in my office doing other stuff. And he had a cassette machine, a cassette recorder by the piano. And every time I heard something that I really thought was brilliant, I would go record that, record that. And we got lots of snippets. He was there, I think, I think he was in New York for a month. And he got lots and lots of snippets. And then I sent him back home to finish that stuff. So yes. And and as the snippets were coming out, we would we would talk them through. We would play them together a little bit. We would consider where to go with it. And then off he went to England. They weren't songs yet. They were ideas. It was important not to have anybody else in the room from that point on, because that was where Peter Gabriel became Peter Gabriel for my money. That was where he got a chance to take these very clever, wonderful ideas that if handled differently might have ended up sounding like Genesis, you know what I mean? And he got to take them home and make them his own. And, and so he did that. And then we, then we arranged to put a band together. It was kind of like the dirty dozen, you know, it was really a band of misfits, um, mostly from New York. And uh, he said, can I have one Brit? And I said, yes, you may have one Brit. <laughs> he got a put, right? So his Brit was, uh, was Fripp, Robert Fripp, who came over. And he also got to bring Larry Fast, um, who's a brilliant synthesizer player. And I got to bring my, my, basically my house band, my, the people that I was working with at the time. And we all got together in Toronto where we recorded the album very quickly, much more quickly than he was used to and much more quickly than he was comfortable with. And as a result of that speed, I think he felt that he never quite got to finish with all of his ideas, all of the things he wanted to explore. I was just kind of pushing him along. And, um, and so we didn't do another project together for years and years thereafter. But, you know, he had a hit record with it. And Salisbury Hill came out was a, was a, Big single, and and to this day is maybe one of the most you know most tempted or sampled or included song for advertising for movies for you know you think of all the commercials you've seen with Salisbury Hill in it, particularly that guitar figure. By the way, that's Steve Hunter, mm. great guitarist. Mm. Yeah, so that's the story. I think you also told me that the lyrics to that song were different, and lyrically. You said, no, keep going. Can you talk about that? So it wasn't just that, 
you know, he needed to keep going on the song. It was that the song Salisbury Hill, the, the chorus is, you know, son, he said, grab your things. I've come to take you home. That's the, that's the chorus. And that's big for people. That's a big one. They love that line. They sing along with that line. Every time he plays it live in concert, 30,000 people or 70,000 people saying, grab your things. I've come to take you home, you know, and, uh, except that in its original version, that line was, son, he said, make your life a taxi, not a tomb. And I said, no. And he said, excuse me. And I said, no, that's not going on this record. <laughs> I said, we, there, on, under no circumstances will there be a line saying, make your life a taxi, not a tomb on this record. It's not happening. And so it and it became kind of a, it was sort of like a joke because he really loved it. And so we teased about it and, you know, we kind of made a thing and the whole band was laughing about it. And, and then we started playing around with, well, what else could it be? So we were like, uh, does anyone here know Officer Muldoon? Um, you know, and then and then we tried, and then we did a backward because this was the time of backward masking, you know, secret messages backward <laughs> in albums. So we did a secret message for that line, and we said, uh, "Zdrakab Nadro." No, wait a minute, yeah, "Zdrakab Nadro Kara Thugvai Luf," which, if you play it, says, "Fool, you've got the record on backwards." <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's having fun. I we were having fun, but we didn't have a chorus, and I was not gonna allow i just couldn't squander that song it was so obviously important and literally it took us until we were mixing in new york and uh and he came up with it you know and, and he, he would come in it was like a joke like he would come in and go i've got it i've got it uh you know da, 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 da. i can't remember but it would always be no and he'd, <laughs> he'd, just, and he'd make a he'd make a show of, of like being dejected and walk out of the studio you know but on this time he came in and he, and he said to me grab your things i've come to take you home and i just it's like it took my breath away as you know i just sat back in my chair and i was like holy shit, that's great Let's do it now. We stopped whatever we were doing. I don't even remember what we were mixing at the time. And we put the, the thing up and had him sing that. And then we did the rest of the vocal there, right there on the spot, all so excited with the discovery of this, you know, the key that unlocked the song. And so it was a great performance on his part and uh, an exciting moment. Just one of those things I will never forget as long as I live. And I think that that, that is my job. Right, that's my job, and 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 it is to sort of set a bar that you know is something I've seen you do or I believe you can do, um, and set it and ask your permission. I always ask permission at the beginning. By the way, always I say, you know, do I have your permission to hold you to this standard? Like I saw, and I, and I never start with a negative. I never say, you know, this wasn't good, therefore we're going to do something different. I always say, I went and saw you live, and this moment took my breath away. This moment, you know, left me in awe or, or smacked me back in my seat or whatever. And I say, do I have your permission to hold us to that standard? And they inevitably say, yes, of course. So then when it's when I do stuff like no, you can't do this. It's not my ego. It's not me. It's not me trying to be right. It's not about that at all. It's about, it's about, you know, 
pushing them to achieve what I know they're capable of doing. And sometimes they go further than they ever believed they could, sometimes, and, and, they're, and they're just thrilled and they love it. And sometimes they resent the push, you know, and, and, and get a little frustrated or angry about it. But most of the time, most of the time with the people I've worked with, um, they will go back to those moments and say that that was really important to them. It's accountability. I guess in a way, you know, they're, but I'm holding them accountable to themselves. That's the point. It's exactly what I do to me. I hold me accountable to me. You know, I, I, I know what I can do and I know what I should do. And when I do less, I get pissed off with myself and I, I work really hard to fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, that goes back to what you were saying before about, about service, right? Um, this is an important component to everything we're talking about in a way, you know, like anybody that's listening to this, you know, you're hopefully you're born with a talent and that's why you're doing this. And that's why you're listening and you have something special and you want to express yourself and you, and and you just have not want, you have this burning need to express yourself and you have these special qualities that allow you to do so, but no one owes you that right. And no one owes you a living. You have to earn it. And if you are lucky enough, like I was, to get it really early and then to have all of the trappings and things that go along with success, you know, and have people listen to you and you have and suddenly you got power and all those things that take most people decades to achieve. You know, if you get it early, you have to recognize that as a, it's a gift and, and it's a loan from the universe. It's a loan. You are being, you are being lent the ability to do these things and and all of the pleasure that surrounds that and but you have to pay it back at some point or another and that's anyway that's my philosophy about it right so every time i get i give every time every time i get a check i give away a, a percentage of it it's a daca box yeah that's a daca box exactly but i learned that as a kid too that that just goes with living, you know, just being. You're a you're a person and 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 from my point of view, the biggest the biggest role we play as individuals is the role we play as part of our uh community. Right? That's our biggest mm-hmm. role. Our biggest role is what we play within our families and in our communities. And everything we do just for ourselves, that's secondary, but I mean important, but secondary. And sometimes it's it's just a means to be able to do the other stuff better. Mm-hmm. And that that's kind of how I think of it. Anyway, for me, you know, I work to achieve certain goals and I mean, sometimes because I'm just compelled to do it, you know, it's a compulsion and I can't help it. But, um, but a lot of times I, I work to do something so that I can help someone achieve something or because there's a, a, you know, a need for people to hear certain things that I think that they should hear, or, you know, there's a reason behind it. And then if it's successful and I get rewarded for that, I see that as something I'm meant to share, right? I'm meant to share it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've given away over the years, you know, I've given away way more than I've kept, but, you know, that's not the point. The point I'm just saying is that if you're lucky enough to be able to do this and you, and you profit from it, don't assume that that's your right or that that was, you know, that that was owed to you by the world. It's not. It's, it's a loan and you have to pay it back. So you pay it back by good works. Be good people. Be good to your family. 
be good to your community, spread the wealth, spread the, the joy, you know, try not to do things that lower people, do things that raise them up. Mm-hmm. And, and always, always understand that this thing we do, this is, this comes from God. You know, this is like, this is, this comes from the heavens. This is a celestial divine thing that we've been, we've been gifted with. And we should be reverential. You know, we should, we should just be so thankful and so grateful and wake up every morning and go, wow, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, whoever you are, what, you know, for affording us this life. Good place to start. It really is. I think nothing can be said after that except thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. Lots of love to you and the kids and Sherry too, and especially to your mom. Uh, Give everybody a kiss for me. And one day it will be safe and we will all see each other again. My heart is full. See you later. Bye, Bob. Bye. You've been listening to Episode 5 for Song Chronicles' second season. I want to thank my guest, Bob Ezrin, for taking the time to share his stories and insights into music and record-making. Is there anybody out there? Join me next time on Episode 6 for a conversation with singer-songwriter-artist Nicole Atkins. You can check out the dozen episodes from our first season, which includes interviews with Gloria Estefan, Sam Hollander, Al Schmidt, Desmond Child, Peter Case, Kathy Valentine, J.D. Souther, and more. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave a review wherever you stream. I'm your host and producer, Louise Goffin.